Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, it was welcome news earlier this year. $552 million in federal funds was going to be available for relief to households and landlords impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. So we want to know who's been helped and is there a backlog? We'll get an update regarding the state's rental assistance program. Also later in the program, a conversation with the Georgia Supreme Court Justice Verda Colvin. All that's on today's program. But first, this, as you just heard on NPR, the Food and Drug Administration has formally approved Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. Now, until now, its authorization was under an emergency status granted by the agency last year. This is the first COVID-19 vaccine after four few to be approved. The time has now come to lay out a plan for a COVID-19 booster shot, though. However, why? That's the latest message from the White House COVID-19 response team. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy laid out part of the plan during the most recent press briefing. Even though this new data affirms that vaccine protection remains high against the worst outcomes of COVID, we are concerned that this pattern of decline we are seeing will continue in the months ahead which could lead to reduced protection against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. That is why we are announcing our plan to stay ahead of this virus by being prepared to offer COVID-19 booster shots to fully vaccinated adults 18 years and older. They would be eligible for their booster shot eight months after receiving their second dose of the Pfizer or Moderna mRNA vaccines. We plan to start this program the week of September 20th, 2021. Now here in Georgia, the state has surpassed a million confirmed coronavirus cases. And according to the Department of Public Health, Georgia now has a 42 percent fully vaccination rate. In other news, Atlanta-based Delta is one of several airlines the Pentagon is asking to help evacuate folks from Afghanistan. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has activated the initial stage of the Civil Reserve Air Fleet program, asking for 18 aircraft from the six airlines. It's not expected to have a major impact to commercial flights. Officials say those aircrafts will not fly into Kabul. They will be used to move passengers from way stations once they leave Kabul. Kabul's excuse me, Kabul, allowing the U.S. military to focus on the Afghanistan portion of the evacuation since the Taliban took over the country. And finally, who wants to be Atlanta's next mayor? Apparently, 14 folks do. Five people registered for the mayor's race on the final day of qualifying, which was last Friday, including City Council member Antonio Brown. Others are entrepreneur Roosevelt Sears, the third, Buckhead businesswoman Rebecca King, 
and residents Glenn Wrightson and Nolan English. Now City Council President Felicia Moore and former Mayor Kasim Reed qualified early, as you all know, as did Attorney Sharon Gay. The City Councilman Andre Dickens as well. And residents Kenny Hill, Mark Hammond, Walter Reeves, and Richard Wright. Candidates for City Council President include City Councilwoman Natalyn Archibong, former APS Board Chairman Courtney English, the former founding CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, Doug Shipman, and retired U.S. Army Officer Mike Russell. A lot of folks. And starting next month, Closer Look will invite all City Council President candidates for a one-on-one with, you guessed it, little old me. Stay tuned for that. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Off for five days, and I forgot how to talk. Forgive me, folks. It was welcome news. Georgia received $552 million from the U.S. Treasury's Federal Emergency Rental Assist Program to help individuals, families, and landlords whose finances will have been negatively impacted due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, I had a conversation with some folks from the Georgia Department of community affairs earlier on this year. And they talked about Georgia receiving the stimulus dollars throughout the, for the plan to fund the state of Georgia. Now, I want you to take a listen to this. Uh, as we wrap up, uh, Tanya and, and Dave, and I've asked everyone this question, where do you hope we'll be, uh, uh, not just as a nation, but maybe even as a state in terms of by the end of the summer and turning the corner with this pandemic and, and obviously allowing folks to stay, you know, in their housing if possible, where do you hope we'll be? Uh, Dave, you go first. Um, I really hope if we have not spent all of the money that we have spent a great proportion of it and that we have stopped evictions uh, in a very efficient way and kept people in their housing. Uh, I'm hopeful just based on what I've heard uh, in terms of people being vaccinated, hopefully by the end of May, Mm -hmm. that will happen and that we'll be back sort of in a normal situation. I mean, I, I know that uh, evictions, when a family is evicted, that takes a long time to recover from. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's much easier to keep somebody from being homeless than it is to help them once they are homeless. And we know that from running our homeless programs. So I just, I really hope to help create stability for families uh, and really have sort of life as usual by the time we get to that point in the year. All right, Tanya, I'll give you the last word. Sure. I was just gonna, I was just gonna add that, you know, for us, um, you know, housing is fundamental to really every aspect of our lives. You know, if you if you've got a, a stable housing situation, you can you can work on your educational needs, you can work on your employment needs, you can work on your health needs. And so um, we really see this 
this program and this effort as an opportunity to shore up all of those things for Georgians across across the the, the state and um, and when we get that housing stability back in place, we're going to be part of the solution to continue to grow the economy and and help people get healthy and and as Dave said, um, help everyone get whole, help the children get back to school and and all of those things. So we we see it as a, an important part and a beginning part of the whole continuum um, along with everything else. And we're we're excited to to keep it going. Now that was Tanya Currington Curry, the Deputy Commissioner for Housing for the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. And we also heard from Dave Wisnat, who serves as the Division Director of Housing Assistance for the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. Well, we wanted to get an update. What was the latest? How much has been dispersed? And is there a backlog? So joining me now with all of this is Daphne Walker, the Division Director for Housing Assistance Division at the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. Daphne Walker, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. We appreciate you giving us the opportunity to come back and talk about the program. And I know you mentioned Dave Wisnett, who's now our chief operating officer. And I now have the opportunity to come in as the division director for the housing assistance division at DCA and primarily responsible for um, addressing the issue of homelessness and housing throughout the state. Mm -hmm. And one of the programs um, that that we have in our housing assistance division is Georgia Realm Assistance. So I'm happy to talk about that today. But let's start here, too, because according to this Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey, and I'm sure you're aware of that, this was back in August on August 2nd, roughly 3.5 million folks in the U.S. said they faced eviction in the next two months. Now, here in Georgia, it's estimated between 159,000 and 340,000 folks facing eviction in the next few months. Daphne Walker, when you hear that, what goes through your mind? What goes through my mind, Rose, is that we we have assistance available for those individuals, and we definitely don't want to see them evicted. And so our focus over at DCA, at the Georgia Department of Community Affairs, has really been to make sure we're getting the word out about funding that is available to families throughout the state to avoid eviction Mm -hmm. um, by simply applying for the funding and getting rental assistance and also utility assistance. And we're going to dig further into that. But I want to give you all also an opportunity to clear something up because, Ms. Walker, um, there have been some claims about how much has actually been dispersed. And according to several credible news outlets, I want to be fair about that, the agency that you obviously are involved with has only dispersed about 2% of the ERA funds. And I, I spoke with the housing justice analyst, Professor Laura Raymond, back in July. And there was also some other analysts in the AJC had said that you all had only dispersed about 2% of those funds. Is that true? Uh, what I will say, Rose, I'm, I, I won't quote the percentage because I'm not a mathematician. What I will tell you is we've dispersed about $20 million of funding to mm-hmm. date. Um, we wish, quite frankly, that we had uh, dispersed more funding than that at this point. But um, I think what the challenge has been, Rose, is that uh, we're at a time where people are used to stimulus checks, right? Mm-hmm. You you hear an announcement on Tuesday that millions of dollars are available and on Wednesday it's in your bank account. And what I like to challenge people to think about when we're talking about rental assistance is that we still have a very large document that says we have certain requirements to Treasury, mm-hmm. that we have to verify certain things before we can disperse funding. And, um, and what we recognize is that people sometimes don't provide all the documentation. Mm-hmm. We're having to follow up for, with the documentation, but we know we can't disperse that funding without the proper documentation. So it has been somewhat of a challenge to make sure that we got that information, not only from renters, 
but also from some of our landlords. So let's take our listeners through the process then, to be fair, because if you're saying a big part of it is, has been folks providing the documentation. Uh, so let's, from when you all got the money, when it was announced, I think back in March, and then yes. you opened up the, the application process, what information did y'all require from, did y'all require this information or are you all dispersing this to other agencies? Let's start there. So DCA, our program is self-contained. We're not dispensing this funding through other agencies because mm-hmm. quite frankly, we we have millions, literally millions of dollars in federal funding that we dispense annually as a part of our regular mission at DCA. And so we are dispensing that funding through the Department of Community Affairs through our own program. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the requirements are not DCAs, the requirements are the treasuries. And so when we talk about what's needed, it is identification from a, uh, a particular tenant. Um, basic thing, driver's license, passport, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have to have proof that there's a landlord-tenant relationship. We have Mm -hmm. to have proof that your rent is past due. Very basic information. Who lives in the household? What is your income for that household? So we can determine that you're 80%, that your salary and your income is less than 80% of the average median income for your area, which is a treasury requirement. And so once we get that basic information, then we also have to go to the landlord and get their information as it relates to their business, a W-9 for the company, and ACH, because we pay our, our payments via ACH transactions. And then we also have to have some proof that they own the property and they have a landlord-tenant relationship um, with the tenant. And that has not always been as easy as we anticipated. I don't, And I will say this is not specific to Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a national concern. Um, that there has just been not the ex- expectation of response times that we had hoped, mainly because we believe that people sometimes don't believe it's too good to be true because we pay up to 18 months of rental assistance. Some people actually don't believe that that's true, but it is, Rose. And then we also just have had challenges um, with getting it all set up because what I don't think people realize is we got an announcement in January about this funding mm-hmm. and we had to completely stand up a program by March. That is putting the um, technology infrastructure in place, staffing up with with 145 employees, which is what we have now Mm -hmm. for GRA, and also making sure that bank accounts, all of those things were set up in that short period of time. So when the announcement was made, you're all getting the funding and you're all going to start accepting applications, I believe, in March then? So are you saying because that means you had to build out the web portal? Did y'all not anticipate this even when there was some assistance coming from the first round? Uh, this is not generally the way, Rose, that, mm-hmm. the, that the Treasury gives us this funding. I mm-hmm. mean, we're definitely excited that the Treasury wants to provide this assistance, but usually the funding is provided to DCA as a grant, and we dispense that to providers. Mm-hmm. Um, this particular allocation is very different from any other funding we've ever received in the state of Georgia as it relates to rental assistance, and we definitely have never received almost a billion dollars worth of funding because we did have 552 million Mm -hmm. in the first allocation we also have another second allocation in era2 of 437 million dollars and so no it's not something that we anticipated Mm -hmm. we did have to build out a portal set up the portal bring in staff identify a building for the staff to sit in right (laughs) get the lease for that building build that space out so that we could have a place for employees to sit and dispense this program all in the middle of a pandemic. So mm-hmm. definitely um, a, a challenging situation from the beginning, but we're completely stabilized at this point and definitely have been processing applications very quickly. 
Uh, we did see a spike in, at the end of July in mm -hmm. applications. So we know that the word is out now and people know that the funding is available and we're prepared to dispense it as quickly as possible. And so the 50 of the 552 million, you all have dispersed about 20 million. What about do you, 20 million about 20 million point. at this point? So. Going back now to the landlords, after you have established that relationship, how does the disbursement work? Does it go to, directly to the landlord? Does it go to the tenant? And if there is a challenge there, what would you like to see changed in that process to expedite all these applications? So it does go directly to the landlord if the landlord elects to participate in the process. However, the Treasury is also really taking into consideration the importance of keeping people housed. And so if, in fact, the landlord elects not to participate in the process, the Treasury requirements do allow us to send that payment directly to the tenant. Mm -hmm. And so what we try to do per the guidelines is to reach out to the landlord. Um, they have a set time frame to respond. If they don't respond within that time frame, then we will make direct payments to the tenants so they can then in turn pay their landlord for any outstanding rent or their utility provider for any outstanding utility. With the application process, Ms. Walker, is there one individual, I guess, I guess you could call them caseworker or, or representative that works on each application or is it all just, just go through the, the online portal and then it makes a decision? How is that decided? Because it sounds like you have to have uh, human eyes on every application. Is that true? We do. We do. The The online process, they do go to our portal, which is georgiarentalassistance.ga.gov. Once they complete the application on the portal, which they can actually do from a smartphone, a computer, all you have to do is take pictures of your documents. If you don't have the ability to scan them, upload them to our portal. And then we have a series of processors that review those documents to make sure that everything is in place. And then once the processors have identified that all the documents are there, it then goes to an underwriter who processes it into a batch for payment. We do make payments every single day. Um, mm -hmm. So every morning we process a batch of payments to go out to, to landlords and or tenants if their landlords elect not to participate and also to utility providers. If a tenant doesn't have all the information they need, all the documentation, are they able to, is that flagged, alerted as they're going through the process or is it after they've completed, or at least to their mind, they've completed the application process and then they get notification? Um, through our portal, um, Rose, actually, we have a chat feature. So if they don't get a document or they don't have a document there, our processors can literally chat with them just as you would on regular you know, social media. Mm -hmm. They can chat with them and say, hey, we need this particular document. And when they upload that document, an alert is sent to our processors that that document has been uploaded through our portal. And so based upon that one-on-one -on -one communication, they could at any time chat with their particular processor if there are questions about things that need to be addressed. Sometimes if it requires a phone call, they can do that as well. Quite mm -hmm. frankly, most people prefer the chat function, mm -hmm. um, but they do have direct line of communication there and we try to get whatever document they need so we can get it processed as quickly as possible. The voice you hear is Daphne Walker, the Division Director for Housing Assistance Division at the Georgia Department of Community Affairs, and we're talking about the Georgia Rental Assistance Program. Uh, Ms. Walker, I do have a question here from uh, a, a listener, and it's actually one of my questions as well. If someone does not have online access, and you and I both know that, as we say, everybody ain't connected, is there a process for them to either 
call in and have someone work with them or the only way to apply for this rental assistance is through an online the online portal there is uh, of course we're sensitive to the fact of all of georgians not having access not only to technology but also broadband mm-hmm. throughout the state and so we do have a paper application that can be sent to them if they call into our office and we will upload all of their documents if they send them back to us in a, a paper format And we also, Rose, recognize the importance of of having people available throughout the state. So we have um, well over 50 partners, people like the Salvation Army, Georgia Legal Services Program, and other agencies throughout the state that if they call us, we can identify the one that is closest to them. And Mm -hmm. they can also go into that agency and have a navigator assist them with completing the application. So we don't want anyone to feel like that, that the inability to access technology should prevent them from accessing the resources. We do have those navigators there. And if they're already in the eviction process, Rose, what mm-hmm. we also have done by partnering with Georgia Legal Services Program, because they have offices throughout the state, is that they will represent them in those that, that legal action for eviction free of charge. They don't charge that particular tenant. They're actually being paid for by DCA mm-hmm. to represent any litigant throughout the state who's facing eviction if they apply with Georgia Legal Services, they can be represented as long as they meet the requirements. They're 80, you know, 80 percent of their average median income mm-hmm. or less um, is, the, is the benchmark. But if they meet those requirements and they would have been eligible for assistance, we are also providing them with um, free legal representation in any eviction action throughout the state. And what about language access and barriers? Do you have Maybe there are folks' households where English is not the language spoken in their house, or do you have those measures in place for folks? Um, yes, we do. We Our documents uh, are required to be trans- translated into specific languages. You know, Spanish, quite frankly, is pretty common. Uh, we also have a Spanish-speaking processor that we can transfer people to if needed. We also have one that speaks Vietnamese. Um, and we're working on hiring one for Mandarin Chinese as well, because we recognize those are the most common languages. Um, we also have the ability to access a language access line if they're calling in with a language that is not specific to English. Um, but we would definitely not let language be an, a barrier to access for these services or programs. Um for someone who does not qualify and get an assistance with the forms, I mean, let's go over that. Uh, when you say qualify, is it solely based on your your income level and where, wherever you meet the threshold, the state's thresholds as it relates to the, the poverty level? Is that solely what it is? It is. You, the income that has to be reported has to be 80% or less of the average median income for your area. And so when you go into the portal and you put in your zip code, it will then advise whoever's applying what their average median income is for their particular area. And it walks you through a series of pre-screening questions so that that person, quite frankly, won't continue to go through the application process if they're not eligible. So the first part of that process is a pre-screening to say, are you um, 80% or is your income 80% of the average median income for the area or less? And then also we have to look at have you been subject to unemployment or had a loss of income based upon the COVID-19 pandemic and has to be directly or indirectly related to COVID for the ERA-1 funding funding dollars, which is the $552 million, mm-hmm. or during the COVID-19 pandemic for the ERA-2 funding. And these, these are federal requirements, not the state, 
Are they-, they are. They are federal requirements from the Treasury. And if you do not pass the, that initial threshold pre-screening to meet those basic qualifiers, then you would not be eligible for funding. But our questioning at the beginning walks a person through those pre-screening questions so that they can make sure they're eligible prior to um, accessing the funds or trying to access the funds. When we came into this conversation and you talked about how you had just come into this role, and I don't know if there was a a lull, but do do you think that could have also added to the backlog? Um, No, not me specifically coming in. I think I came in in May Mm -hmm. um, to to assist with the implementation of this program. And I think that there there is somewhat of a backlog, but not anything that we don't think is manageable. We're definitely moving very quickly through those applications Mm -hmm. and just getting people acclimated to the process. I think early on, it was largely just a lack of information by the people who were applying, be it tenant or landlords. But now that we've started a statewide outreach process and we've actually opened our funding up statewide, we've seen an increase in applications and an increase in our response time. How you all reaching people? I mean, y'all get to come on this show, but sadly, I know everybody doesn't listen to Closer Look at Rose Scott, and that's okay. We're trying to change that. But how are you all reaching people, you know? Well, we we talk to people like Rose Scott, right? And (laughs) we get on radio stations and we get the word out. We have billboards throughout the state, Rose. Um, and we just announced two weeks ago that we're now statewide. Originally, there were 12 jurisdictions that received their own funding, mm-hmm. like the city of Atlanta, Fulton County, DeKalb. And we were staying out of those areas um, previously. But we started getting calls for demand for us to go into those areas. And it worked in partnership with those jurisdictions and said, let's go ahead and expand statewide. And then we also have, as I said, the 56 agencies throughout the state that are assisting. And we are also in the process of putting into place 13 outreach coordinators in 13 regions throughout the state that will be immediately available to respond in those 13 regional areas. Are these implementations that you have personally spearheaded and wanted to put in, Ms. Walker? Because I'm curious, you know, and to sound like my grandfather, why didn't y'all do that in the first place? You know, Rose, I think everything is a process. And what what it, what I like about the Department of Community Affairs is we're very accustomed to being able to service individuals throughout the state. And I think sometimes people look at our urban areas where, we, like you said, we have access to broadband, right? We can, we can do it on the internet and get it out quickly. But what we also have to focus on and what DCA has experience with is we've got to go out into the rural areas and make sure that this message is also being communicated. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to be by broadband. That's going to be boots on the ground, people going to churches and to local recreation centers and the like to share this information. And we now have mobilized a team of people that will be put in place in these different regions in the state to make sure that happens. That makes sense because you want to make sure you serve everyone. But given that Fulton and DeKalb and Gwinnett and Cobb, these are your most populous counties and mm-hmm. also are, have some of the highest eviction rates to begin with anyway. Been covering this for a long time. So one might, might ponder why you just didn't do that in the first place and you may not have had a backlog. I mean... Well, I think the concern um, was was not so much that we wouldn't reach out to those areas, um, but I think the expectation was that everybody would really know about this program um, and would have have the ability to access it. We had partnered with Georgia Legal Services that is statewide, the Salvation Army that is statewide, and some other partners. But we also recognized that there were a lot of community leaders, Rose, that are not connected 
to the, I call them name brand organizations, right? Mm -hmm. Salvation Army, things that we could recognize that really wanted to connect as well. And so what we decided is we need an individual in those regions that can deal with the pastors that just want to get together to make sure people get assistance. Mm -hmm. They can work with sororities and fraternities, those types of things. School districts. So that was school districts exactly so it was it, that was what caused us to pivot in that direction it was basically the demand and request that we started to get from citizens throughout the state and we're of course now trying to meet that demand as we begin to wrap up miss walker what is your optimism in terms as it relates to moving beyond that 20 million dollar uh, disbursement mark that you all are at you got 552 million um what how hopeful are you where do you want to be i mean the moratorium is going to expire again soon um, and there's already some evictions or the the eviction process has begun for a lot of in a lot of counties and also um, well I'll let you answer that and I'll follow up sure Rose we're very optimistic because what we've done is partner with judges throughout the state and we're very proud of the magistrate court judges throughout the state who work with us in this process I will share Rose I'm a retired chief magistrate court judge mm-hmm. I used to be a chief magistrate court judge in Clayton County. Mm -hmm. So I'm very familiar with the eviction process and what's required legally to do that because of my legal background as a lawyer and and as a judge. And so what we're excited about about is that we've partnered with a number of court systems that are allowing us to have access to their dockets, um, that they're giving us information about when these cases are scheduled to go to court. And so we're also putting people on the ground in those jurisdictions and saying, hey, we have funding available. And, and examples are Athens, Clark County, in that particular county, the judge, if they agree to do DCA funding, they will continue that case with the permission of the, the tenant and the landlord to give DCA time to make that a good situation for all parties involved by paying the past due rent. And so we're just continuing to do that. We're optimistic about it with the number of the, the courts that we work with. Um, that we're going to be able to meet the demand as it relates to making sure that people don't get evicted. And then the other part of it is we're going to get these things processed, get the word out, and make sure that people are taking taking advantage of what's available. And we're doing that by the outreach teams that I identified. And also now that we have gone statewide as of mm-hmm. two year, two weeks ago, I'm sorry, what we're also going to do is to start our advertisement in the main markets because we had not previously been advertising in the Atlanta market but we'll now be advertising in the Atlanta market and through the other markets. And you of all people know you have been on the bench as folks are going through the eviction process. Georgia has the money, has a lot of money, more than a half a billion. When will you go back, look at those numbers to see where you all are, and if you are not satisfied to your liking in terms of how much is being disperse and make sure there's equity involved in all of that. Do you have any measures in place that you can implement? Is there anything more that you can add that's not in there right now? No, I think what we've done right now, Rose, is completely ramp up. And I I think that people took that for granted. There are some states, Rose, I want to share um, that have not started implementation of their funding or their programs at all throughout the country. And so while Georgia is at a $20 million payout at this point, um, I think it's important to recognize that there's some some states that are going to start next month, right? Yeah. Starting any type of payment plan. But 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 Miss Walker, that doesn't mean anything to someone who's facing eviction right now. Don't I mean? Can sure. you understand that? I can. But what I what I want everybody to know now is we need people to go to the portal mm-hmm. and apply. We are fully staffed at this point to be able to respond to the demand. 
Um, like I said, we have 145 people employed right now in the Georgia Rental Assistance Program that are processes and underwriters ready to make sure that these payments go through. And, and, and the other part of it is bring complete documentation because let's, I will let's go over there right now again while we have time tell folks what they need to have in hand before they even okay. log on to the portal or, or call because that is a significant part of the problem mm-hmm. so what I would say as far as us not getting money into the hands of people as quickly as they might hope so when it comes to a tenant uh, what the tenant is going to have to have is some type of identification a state mm-hmm. ID or passport their income documents that can be a W Two, um, based upon what your income was for the last year, it can be an income tax return. If you don't have those things, it can be your last 90 days worth of pay stubs. If you're unemployed, we need the documentation showing that you're receiving unemployment or some type of SSI support. Mm -hmm. Their past due rent notice or their past due utility bills, a copy of their lease, and then they have to complete an attestation form that indicates that they're either unemployed, have had a significant reduction in income, or suffered financial hardship due to COVID-19. Okay. On the landlord side, they would also need identification of state ID or passport, proof of ownership of their property, a statement of delinquent rent, which is basically the register that says that they owe this many payments and, and what the late fees are associated with that, because mm-hmm. we do also pay the late fees. And then they would need a W-9 and bank information for the ACH payment. Um, it is important to note we do pay um, Late fees, we do not pay eviction fees. So if they filed an eviction, we're not allowed per the treasury to pay those things, but we will pay the late fees. And um, I do want to share, Rose, we do also have a partnership with Georgia Power. Mm-hmm. They're sending out information about the Georgia Rental Assistance Program in every Georgia Power bill. It also runs as a banner on their Georgia Power website. They're also putting it on hang tags for people who are subject to disconnect okay. so that they can come to the portal and log in. So we're getting the word out. Our biggest thing is come with the correct documentation. Mm-hmm. Please go ahead and apply. And then also make sure that you follow up if someone from our team contacts you for additional information. And the website. The website is georgiarentalassistance.ga.gov. georgiarentalassistance.ga.gov. All right. And we'll have a link on our website as well. Daphne Walker, director for, Division Director for Housing Assistance Division at the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. Thank you so much for coming back and answering all these questions. We're going to bring you back maybe uh, next month. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thanks, Rose. We appreciate you. Thank you, Ms. Walker. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. This past July, Verda Colvin was sworn in to serve as a justice for the Supreme Court of Georgia. A historic appointment for so many reasons. And guess what? Of course, she joins me now to talk about all of that and the state of democracy and our judicial system as a whole. Justice Colvin, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ms. Scott, for having me. I got to say... Another historic moment. You are the first guest to actually ask a question for another guest that was ahead of you. (laughs) I help in our local community with issues like this. And so we're having an event next weekend where we're going to they're going to be people on hand to help residents who are underwater and trying to stay in their homes. And so I wanted to have some information to share with our group as well. So thank you. Well, what do you make of let's begin there because there's so much obviously this pandemic has just just 
impacted all of us. And there's so much that it's touched so many people in so many different ways. What do you make of all this in this moment that we're in right now? Not just as a nation, but, you know, the entire world. It's just, you know, it's terrible. We, I constantly ask myself, when did all of this happen? Like, when did we start going off uh, the beaten path? Mm -hmm. And I say this often, change happens incrementally. Very small little nuances end up affecting the total picture. And I think that's probably where we are now Mm -hmm. as a society. Um, Sometimes when you sweep things under the rug, eventually you get a a boulder size that you trip over. And um, I think many issues that we face probably as a result of that, um, the little things, not taking care of the little things. And so hopefully, you know, with things like what Ms. Walker was talking about um, with the assistance for people who are going to be evicted. Hopefully these avenues for assistance will help um, bring people to parity so that they can have some semblance of normalcy in their lives. You know, I want to go back to the morning you were being sworn in. What was going through your mind when you, when you woke up that morning? Uh, Did you have your speech ready? I did. I I had that ready, but just the, the whole, um, idea was just incredible. Um, Something that I never envisioned for myself, uh, because many times we don't envision all the possibilities that exist, uh, because life gets in the way Mm -hmm. and dreams get lost along the way. And so I was just thinking how phenomenal it was to be in that space to have that opportunity. Um, And, and, and I will say this, you know, this is who I am as a person. Um, I had nothing but Um, accolades for my spiritual, you know, father, Mm -hmm. Uh, because the, my whole stance throughout my entire career is let me do your will, whatever that is, whatever that means, however menial, um, I just want to make things better. And I want to walk in the way in which you'd have me to walk. And so that's been my mantra through my life. And so to, to have that as my guide and to see that even still success is possible has been so transformative for me. And I use that to share with other people, particularly young people, to keep them encouraged. Has your view of our nation's judicial and legal system, has it changed at all? Has it been altered? Have you, has it opened your eyes along your journey, your path? And if so, what, what give me a, a sense of what that's been like for you. You know, what we think about something when we're 20 and 21 is a little bit different as we get older, most times. I don't know if my viewpoint has changed as much as it's grown, um, and maybe that's changed, but I think it's been transformed over the years. So I started off practicing law, doing defense work, went to prosecution, um, then started on the state level in Superior Court, Court of Appeals, and now the Supreme Court. So I've had the viewpoint of being able to see it from every angle. Um, And it's hard for me to answer that question from any perspective other than my own. Mm -hmm. And so what I will say to you is that what I have seen is that details matter. The little things matter. And throughout my career, I've noticed that paying attention to those little things make a difference in the process, the Mm -hmm. procedure, the outcome, and people's lives. And my biggest component or proponent about our system is we have to pay attention to the details because that that makes the difference for every aspect of the judiciary, every aspect of our legal system. 
Let me get your thoughts then on this based on what you just said and paying attention to the details. If the details appear to be maybe in conflict or opposition of a of a state statute, you know, what's your approach then? And for example, I'll use Georgia's latest new election law. You know, I know that you could possibly rule on something like that, but I, I will, you know, but just in general, when there is a conflict there of the details and perhaps the, the actual statute, what is the process that someone like you, what is that process to, to work through that, to dissect the, the bugs there, so to speak? Well, I can't talk about anything specifically, sure. but the process that I use when I'm looking at any issue on appeals, we, and this is something that lay people need to understand, as mm-hmm. the judiciary, we don't make the law. There sure. are three branches of government, um, executive, judicial, and legislative. So we're duty bound to stay within the four corners of that statute or that law and interpret whether that statute conforms with state constitution mm-hmm. as well as the United States Constitution. And so sometimes, particularly in issues where people think, well, why didn't the court do this thing? Um, Many times you will see in our opinions an explanation of why the court may have had to make the decisions they make because they're duty bound to follow the law as written, even knowing sometimes that that wasn't the intent, possibly, Mm -hmm. of the legislature. Mm -hmm. Because doing otherwise would mean we're going outside of our realm and being the Um, legislature instead of the judiciary. And so I have had situations when I've been a judge, particularly on the Superior Court, where I've had to explain in my um, orders Mm -hmm. the reasoning for my decision based upon the law as it is, but then maybe doing some dicta about what I think may be the Mm -hmm. shortcomings or something that may have not been thought about, but I'm prohibited from Mm -hmm. going there because I'm strictly to interpret the law as written. You mentioned that in terms of what most lay people may not know in terms of the process. And therein lies, you know, for a lot of folks and folks like us who are asking questions as to why you didn't do this or why you didn't do that. How do you suppose that folks really become more aware of what these these branches, what each one does? Is it are we ignorant as a community, a society in terms of? knowing what these three branches do and and understanding how it works. Or someone will say, you know, well, listen, that's why she's a justice to do this for us. Yeah, Um, I do believe we lack as a whole the knowledge about our government and all the components of our government. But I think it's incumbent upon each of us in each of those arenas to explain things in a way that people can understand. So, for instance, in Superior Court, I was very known for um, being very plain spoken and explaining to people the process, the procedure, why things were the way they were so they would understand that. Um, I just feel like that's I'm duty bound to do that as a public servant. Um, And so I think we could all do better in that regard in every branch of the government of explaining things so that lay people can understand meeting people where they are so that people can understand their government, how it works, um, and the different components that make it work. As it relates to the Georgia Supreme Court and, you know, your appointment, it was historic in in a sense. But when you think about now what you're tasked to do, um, what's your approach, same approach as what you just told me in terms of when you're a Superior Court judge and, and everything before that, same approach? 
same approach. In my mind, I still need to remember that everything I do affects people and it affects entities. And I need to be mindful of that with every decision I'm a part of, every opinion that I write. Um, and that's something that I've always held true to because I think people need to understand. I said this to my staff here and I've said it when I've been on other courts. I want someone who's not a lawyer to be able to pick up my opinion and be able to read it and somehow understand a portion of it so that they can then apply it to their given situation. I don't think I should just write for lawyers or for other judges. I think I should write so the people can understand the law. Should the public know or be fully aware of a justice's political leaning, be left, right? Is that problematic? If nothing has shown how problematic that is, I think the state of affairs now shows that. Yeah. We depend on judges to just rule on the law as much as humanly possible, put all of the other stuff out of their mind and just look at the law as it stands and rule on the law. That's the only way to ensure that we have fairness and justice. And when you start bringing in partisan politics into the judiciary, I think that makes for um, a plethora of problems that we aren't designed to handle. After the January 6th attack on the Capitol, and we asked listeners about how they view the state of democracy, got a lot of different answers. Uh, For some, you can understand folks feeling like it was fractured, it was threatened, it was disintegrating in a sense. Um, What's your response to someone who might not have hope as to what this nation's, what democracy is supposed to be about in this nation? And can you understand those those feeling that way? I do. Um, And I I say this many times to my friends and people who know me, I am a prisoner of hope. So I'm, I'm always thinking the positive. And what I will say is when you look back over the history of our country, Mm -hmm. democracy has continually been tried and tested, but it has maintained despite the, the conflict, despite the disagreement, despite all the woes we've gone through, we still have sustained ourselves as a democracy. And that's because we're a government of the people and by the people, even though at times that's tested. And so mm-hmm. that's why we should have hope. We have begun an experiment that is nothing like anything else in this world that we know. And so this experiment has been working. Is it perfect? No. Are we, but we're an imperfect people. Mm-hmm. And so we recognize that. But I continue to believe that we won't come toward perfection if we don't learn to come together on some basic premises. That's and good. those premises are encapsulated in our Constitution equality, fairness, justice. Hmm. Good way to end this conversation. Justice Verda Coleman, newly appointed justice to the Georgia Supreme Court. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We've got to have you. We're going to bring you back. If you if you will come back, I really appreciate it. I will. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.